Joe. Oh, I hear a bit of a hum. Is that from here or yours? Um, it sh it yours, shouldn't be. It okay. shouldn't be you from. Oh, did I? Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, Joe, it's good to hear that you've been reading the suttas. I highly recommend that. Even though the way that things are worded in a stilted kind of language um, causes confusion, but that confusion can be used as curiosity. So congratulations for, for going into that uh, and asking most specifically about one word, but that one word is in the context of what we call the five aggregates are the are the khandas or the skandas um and that the first thing to understand is is that the teaching that the buddha gives and uses these things these five khandas as an example of a point that he's making in that sutta number 22 the simile of the snake and what is the point is is that there is no permanent self Everything is temporary. Your body arose from childhood. It has a lot of in and out, both with food and with air and water, and also the cells of the body get die and get replaced. That every molecule of the body, of the human body, they say changes within seven years anyway, that not nothing is left. Everything goes out, either the heavy stuff goes out through the urine and new heavy stuff comes in and gets floating around the body. And so that's the way that it goes. There's nothing permanent about the body. There's no self there. Now, this is actually the issue is not what the definition of the various words in this list of the five aggregates but more the real question is what do we mean by this word the poly word anatta that's the issue if we can understand that issue then we can understand how we're talking about the five condos can, so i have a right. question related to this i've i've often heard uh that as soon as you start talking about no self that you get into a bit of a puzzle because then you have a self that is identifying with the discussion about no self. I think Ajahn Chah is the one who uh, says this and he sort of laughed in the story that I've heard about it. Yes, um, and, that's, yeah. and that's the point is, is that that's a misunderstanding of the word anatta that that's not what the word means. The problem is, is that we have used the word self as a translation of the word anatta. That's the real problem. Okay. And if we understand the correct translation of the word anatta, then we can see exactly how it fits into everything, which is the five khandas. So let's go in that direction. And by the way, you were the one who brought up the word no self. I was starting off using the word anatta intentionally. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess it's because I just read that sutta and they, they mentioned no self in the, the sutta That's also. <laughs> the problem is the translation of the word anatta. 
So let's look at it. Um, let us say one way of looking at it is um, the word um, is often used for atom, like atom. But the word atom, now it looks like the epistemology of the word is that that came out of the same ancient Greek at the time of the Buddha, about 500 AD, excuse me, BC, when uh, they were doing that kind of stuff, that the word anatta, uh, similar to the Greek, is a different word, not A-T-O-M, but A-T-M-O, atmo, which is giving us, in our language now, atmosphere. The sphere around the world and the atmos is the surrounding of that. This is the atmos. You could think of it as then the atmosphere itself. But Atmos is life-giving, but Atmos is also not permanent. That the life that goes in and out with your breathing is the life. That's And it's in the Atmos. It's in the atmosphere. But the atmosphere or the Atmos is not... Uh, let us say, ruling or in charge or permanent, and yet people think of that atmosphere that we live in, the environment that we live in, the life-giving properties of that, we kind of think of that as God. We also call it Mother Earth and all kinds of magical kinds of language. And the Buddha is trying to put a stop to that kind of magical language, especially the concept that the earth is always here and she's always going to kind of take care of us in a kind of way. Or the Christians kind of think of God, a male image of the same kind of thing, except he's a sky daddy rather than a, um, uh, a grandmother. And the Buddha is saying, take those personalities out of that and also recognize that you don't have that kind of personality either. That every morning, every moment, in fact, can be a brand new slate. The problem is, is that we continue to operate according to old patterns. And that it's important to understand that destiny also, or providence, those kind of languages and that kind of wording has to do with the fact that you can see the way that people live their whole lives, but that's not, and they think that God did it, that that's part of God's plan, that God wants it that way, to where in fact, no, it's not. It really is, it's just they got into a set of patterns. Let us say that you had a bicycle that could only turn left and it could not turn right. You'd wind up riding a bicycle in circles, right? Something just broken in there, that's all. Okay, so um, that's why we have a destiny. We keep going around and around in the same circles of destiny. It's because we're not thinking clearly and learning how to steer this bicycle very well. So the whole quality of the teaching of the Buddha is that that bicycle is not fixed that way. It's not broken. It can be repaired. That's the whole quality of the, the, the issue of the self. 
This actually fits in directly with and is almost just a side appendage or an adjunct to the second noble truth. And that the way that the word um, self is used, we can use it in the sense of you personally, yourself, are the one who is responsible for all of the causes that affect you in negative ways. Okay, that's actually the definition of the second noble truth. What is the cause of dukkha? What is the cause of greed, ill will, and delusion? It's all between your ears. And they're between, and all of the suffering that any individual will ever have is between his own ears. So in that regard, we have to say, well, there is a self, look, we're talking about it. And not only that, but when you look at Carl Jung, he's talking about individualism, and we hear the individual, but the actual idea is is undivisible. That in fact, each one of us think of ourselves as an ego or a self, or in fact, generally we're a crowd inside. And that crowd generally works in three different ways. The parent that feels and uh, excuse me, the the child that feels and the parent that uh, sets a bunch of rules and and supposed tos, and we have that kind of warfare or dialogue in the sense that the rule system sums up and says you ought to do this, and the child inside says no, I don't want to do that. Okay, and here we go into these woeful states, and we talk ourselves into them literally. But the adult part is the part that can see this happening, that we're, the part of the mind that is the smartest that can see the dots and connect the dots and to figure things out and see sequence of events and say, I see where that's headed. But we often don't even put that part of the mind into gear. Instead, we just leave this old dialogue between parent and the child going on and it and it seems like you know um, <laughs> sometimes out and out warfare inside where we really feel bad. So if we can uh, understand that these five aspects, these five khandas, don't have already that permanent self that we think that we are that we're actually a crowd inside and actually none of it is permanent and everlasting. There is nothing permanent anywhere that this whole system is based upon repetitions anishas and things keep changing. And some of them change in the sense of going around in circles or having a rhythm and something changes erratically so that it's noise rather than music. So basically, the whole question is, are you going to get enough repetition going in your life, enough pattern matching going on <clears throat> so that your life becomes musical rather than random noise? Hence the training out of coming out of unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts, one after another after another. And in that regard, what by having that is kind of a new way of doing it or a new rule or uh, something that we're plugging in like that, at least while by putting in these wholesome thoughts over and over again, we're using a new kind of old knowledge, whether the old, the old kind of old knowledge. 
that the old kind of old knowledge we learned in diapers. We learned how to get our way by manipulating people. Okay, and other things like this. So that's the old knowledge, and that's the way that the child operates. The child inside is a manipulator, and the adult or and the parent inside is an um, authoritarian boss. And those are the two primary ingredients inside of each human being. But we all have the possibility of turning on the real machine, the the supercomputer, the adult in the room, that kind of language, so that we can uh, see really what's going on. And then in uh, much Western language, we can then think of is that's the self, the adult in the room, the observer, the one who sees what's going on. But he's the one who has been asleep all the time while the other parts of the self we're in dialogue and confusion. So when we see things like this, then we can understand that back to the teaching of the Buddha, that old dirt was not me, never was me. And here I've been thinking about who I am as the sum total of all that I've ever learned. And boy, have I learned a lot. And so am I smart or what? You know, this is the kind of way that we think. <laughs> Until we realize that, wait a minute, that's just old dirt, most of it. It's not knowledge. It's not valuable. It's just a plaything or a toy at best. But generally, we wind up giving ourselves more work to do. An example is, is that there was one course at the university that I got an incomplete on, and that was the third level calculus course. That means that every time I see calculus on YouTube, I've got to go. I've got, I've got to go into it. I got, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get that incomplete grade filled <laughs> until I wake up. Oh yeah, I know why I'm interested in calculus right now. At least at that level. I never really liked calculus three either. That's funny because I I liked I really liked calculus two, but then the third one where it gets into like three dimensions i don't know something right public coordinates three-dimensional stuff i mean it's just really fascinating in a way you can't do uh, uh gps coordinates you i mean our gps system wouldn't work without uh, the public coordinates and and uh, uh third level calculus <laughs> so it's really curious it's really interesting i like it a lot <laughs> why <laughs> because i got an incomplete in it <laughs> Not good enough here. You're not standing up to the standards here, you know. <laughs> and so we, um, but luckily now I can do it with great joy and mm. curiosity rather than, oh, no, I, stu I screwed that up. So I, I find this can be tricky sometimes because uh, a lot of times that sort of parent figure tends to take over uh and it's sort of like, oh, oh, good that you've found another way or, or the man, it might be the manipulators here. I don't know which one of those, but it, it sort of takes over uh, when the wholesome thoughts are coming about something. And it's sort of like, oh, it's really good that you're having these wholesome thoughts. That way you can get yourself to do all these things that you haven't been doing. And it and it gets back into it. And I, I guess the answer is, is just to identify when. It comes. Yes, that you can hear those two thoughts. One, the first, you it's know, really it's like tricky. when it gets it's into really a tricky, system. Though. Right. 
those two thoughts get into one sentence, a compound sentence. Like, congratulations for really getting your act together. Right, now exactly. I'm going to put it to work. <laughs> and right. we need to see both sides of that. And then we can say, uh-huh, I see you trying to put it to work. I'm here to enjoy it instead. <laughs> right. Okay. And so this is part of the reason why um, or the results that you're looking at is because you've already kind of gotten the position that you can, in fact, change. And that's what the real teaching about the five aggregates is all about. It's about can you change or not? Because if you think of yourself as permanent, everlasting, uh, fixed in some way, uh, destiny, uh, fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, a leopard can't change his spots. I mean, this stuff is really buried deep into our mental thinking through society. Uh, boys will be boys is another one. Or Suze is just being Susie, you know. Those are the ways that we kind of accept the fact that um, uh, we are all criminals at heart. Original sin. We're busted somehow. Incomplete. Not good enough. Do you see how all of that's built into the system? If that loads, okay, so that leaves us with feeling that way, doesn't it? <laughs> Which means that often we will take opportunities just to talk ourselves into feeling that way. So when you congratulate yourself, wow, this is really nice. I'm getting someplace. Now I'm going to put you to work. Means that we just went from uh, congratulations and satisfaction into disappointment. Now we're going to do something with it. And that's just an excellent moment. But what happens to the feelings of elation by congratulations into, oh, no, more work to do, huh? Well, I, I generally it gets kind of, I, I get like an annoyed feeling like, I thought I took care of you. And, and then and then I'm, yeah, that's that's generally the thing. And then you just have to like stop at that point and just stop the whole thing and realize you don't have to get annoyed at it either. The, uh-huh. Exactly. You know? that the then in fact the annoyance, that's what I was pointing to, is the feeling yeah. that comes out of out of that thought. Yeah. Okay, which will actually then be the trigger for the next thought moment. That's what we mean by the parent says you got this work to do and then the child gets annoyed. That's the sequence right there. Right. And then the parent comes back again, you ought not be annoyed, <laughs> or something like that. And so there, that that goes. And so we need to bring the adult into the room, <clears throat> which has done what we mean by sati, to be here now, to figure out that that's the patterns that we have in the mind. So we can literally put a stop to it. Why? Because those sand cars are fleeting. Perception is fleeting. Consciousness is fleeting. Feelings fleet, but not quite as fast as the others. And the body is the least fleeting at all. And that's why so many of us more strongly attached to the body than anything else. That in fact, most of the industries that we have in the world has to do about people attaching to the body. What do I mean? Cosmetic industry, clothing industry, uh, sports industry, 
um, and including the health industry in all of the bottles and all of the treadmills and all of that industry is based upon they people wanting to make money from other people who think I am the body. Cosmetics is another one. Look at all these industries is just because people attach to I am the body. How about the medical profession? How about the um, pharmaceutical manufacturers? If people don't attach to the body, they don't bother to take medicine. They're not trying to fix something that may or may not be broken, depending upon your attitude. And so when we become free in the mind and not attached to much of anything, especially not attached to thinking that I am the body, that the body is just going to go do what it wants to do, my job as the as the um, as the observer here is to watch what's going on, is to observe, is to watch, to look, but not do too much nudging. But sometimes we need to nudge, and what is that nudge? Is to bring it out of unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. That's the nudge. That's the right effort. That's the nudge, in fact. The, the, the higher quality mind, the one who wakes up, investigates the observer and sees what's going on, occasionally has to nudge, which is one's right effort. I mean, is this the Eightfold Noble Path or what? <laughs> <laughs> And so that's the real you, but that too is temporary because it only arises when the observer is awake. You're only indivisible when, uh, or individual when the, uh, the higher qualities of the mind is in charge of both the parent and the child so that the parent is now doing the job of nurturing the child. And so while the parent is nurturing the child, the adult is free to watch watch what's going on and watch over them just to make sure that everything's hunky-dory. So that's one of the ways of, of looking at it, and this sounds very much like um, Carl Jung. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've been reading him and posting stuff about him recently. So this... Uni reunification of the mind is the whole point of the Eightfold Noble Path. But people get confused when they call it uh, Sama Area Samati, thinking that Samati is some sort of concentration, when the reality is, is no, it's gathering the factors of all of these parts of the mind back into a unified individual, someone who really does see things from a noble self. So that's another way, and this then fits in with the way that Gurdjieff operated. As he says that, yeah, most people don't have a soul. Most people don't have a self. That, in fact, it takes a lot of work to develop one. Well, this is exactly what Jung is talking about, and this is exactly what the Buddha is talking about, except the Buddha has a bit more, uh, let us say, even a higher class or more noble view than the psychologists do. Because the psychologists, after all, remain psychologists, and the Buddha, after all, just remained a hobo. <laughs> a, a, a nobody. And that's the way to, uh, to, to approach it in the sense that there's nothing worth clinging to as an I, me, or mine. 
Because any time that we cling to anything that belongs to us, we're going to get disappointed with that. Either we're drug along with it as it moves along, <laughs> which happens often, and what that means is that's the, the, the animal. Or we can rebel against it and try to destroy the thing, and that would be anger. Or we uh, uh, want to fight it, but are afraid to fight, and so we put up with it. These are all just the woeful states of the mind that has to do with how we're going to respond to the parenting or the critical mind state. And so by taking the mind out of that critical mind state into, by using Sankara, new high-quality Sankara rather than the old Sankara, in other words, as we're developing new habits, those habits develop as skills so that now when we're putting things together, we're putting things together with new cloth, not old cloth. We're putting our new wine in new wineskins, not putting new wine in old wineskins. There's an old proverb about that in the Bible. So... That's the Sankara means don't use the old ways of doing things. Let's figure out a new way of doing things and then proceed with that and work on that level. That's another way of understanding Sankara is that you've got a choice even with the kind of Sankara or what kind of past are you going to start building up? Are you going to start building up a, a past that's full of wholesome moments? Are you going to be continuing to add a... A past and, and creating a new past of unwholesome moments. So that's a way of looking at what I'm talking about. That 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 sankara is temporary. It's, it doesn't. It's not fixed. You're not stuck with the old stuff. You can start putting in the stuff that you want to put into it and start using that as the ingredients for the next thing that you're going to build. So. That's what we're looking at is the five aggregates. Going back to the body, that's the most permanent of all, and that's the where people really get delusionally attached to I am the body, so they kind of freak out when the body gets old and sick. They think that when the body dies, they die. Fact is, the whoever they was was up and down and up and down and up and down. It's going to eventually just be up and then down and then that's it. <laughs> you know, the body's going to die. But there is no me there to die. If I'm going to be a real me, the real me is watching the show. Hey, this is what this is fun. I've never seen anything die from the inside before. <laughs> Watch it. This is an interesting show. That in fact, that's something that's well known about Socrates, is that he described the process of what was happening with his body as the uh, poison, the hemlock, was taking over. That he started losing feeling in his legs and other things like that, doing a scientific investigation. His students are there writing down the notes of what it's like to die. <laughs> And so I say, hot dog, we're going was to he, do that. <laughs> was he, po was he, I, I'm not familiar with the story. Was he poisoned on purpose or what happened? Yeah, as, as punishment by the state, mm. actually by the, by the council of Athens. And they, they sentenced him to death because he, uh, the original sentence was get out of town. And the original sentence, even before that was shut your mouth. 
and he wouldn't shut his mouth and he wouldn't leave town. So they put him to death and he just went along with it and says, fine, that's what the state wants. And I think that we need states. And so here we go. One point, though, is that he made really good friends with the jailer who was um, uh, taking care of him, let all of his friends in. And so all of his students were there. His family wasn't because they were too emotional. When one of the students started to cry, he got thrown out. This is the party, boys. <laughs> and he was so lively and animated and, and things like that that the jailer became upset and had to give him another bottle of, of hemlock or another cup of hemlock because the first one wasn't working. He wouldn't let it happen. <laughs> so this is the story of Socrates' death. You're going to die, too. Die with this happy story on your mind. This yeah. is a good way to go. I'm going to go out like Socrates. You know? mm. <laughs> I can watch the show. I can be here for it. So um, if we can think of that kind of attitude about our own death, then we can put that kind of attitude, hey, I can survive anything. If I can handle death very well, I can handle this too. Any ego death or anything that happens to this poor self is only a self that I manufactured to shield me from my own fears. And when I got no fear, there's no reason to pull up this self-preservation instinct. That's the whole point. And how do we shut that thing off is by feeding the feeling system with really wholesome stuff so that the feeling system, the child doesn't get confused or worried or angry or upset or greedy or any of that kind of stuff. The child is just really satisfied within and we feel really good because we don't allow things to bother us. An example of that is, is that when the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune come, you've heard that expression? Yeah, 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 I'm I'm not sure if I've heard that. But well, you can the sling, yeah. okay, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune means that you are the target for some people. Okay. The question is, are you going to stand there and be a target? Is there a self there to be a target, to be hit with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Or is there not much of you there that, so that you can stand aside and let that arrow... Psh, Go that way, and that rock coming from the sling went right past me. Can't touch me. You missed me. <laughs> you see, that's a kind of an attitude. That when we were children, oh, we got our feelings hurt when somebody said something bad. Are we going to continue to behave that same way when, in fact, the reality is, is he, what he said doesn't mean that things are dangerous, that he can't touch me? Because <clears throat> there's no me much there to touch. Why? Because it's just condas. It's just the five aggregates. It's just Sankara. It's just feeling. That's all it is. Not much of a self there anywhere. Now, there's one more thing that we can point at, and that is, is that have you ever heard of general systems theory? Uh, it kind of rings a bell, but you can remind me. Okay. I won't go into too much detail other than one point about it is the, uh, the concept that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. 
Do you know what we mean by that? Um, that if you take all of the parts separately and they are not together, that uh, the whole the whole thing doesn't really work. Would, would that exactly be exactly so? You're describing oh. the operation of every machine in existence. Right. That things have to be put together and working together correctly. Right. It's That's the whole point. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting sometimes that like uh, I, I work with machinery a lot, and you know you can you you sometimes need the smallest, most worthless part, or the whole thing doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> Precisely. All right, but the working then of the machine is the difference then between the parts just laying around versus the machine put together correctly and functioning correctly. And so the functioning of the machine is greater than the parts of the machine. Right? That's easy. Now that you understand that concept, uh, another example would be either a chariot or a car. We can use a car, but in the scriptures, they talk about it as a chariot with Melinda and, uh, uh, Nargajuna was the monk and King Melanda had a chariot and he was asking him that question and so uh, with permission sire can I uh, instruct your people to take apart your uh, chariot to make a point and so as he took the chariot apart into the various pieces now where's the chariot where's the chariot that you ride in the chariot that you ride in is the chariot in your mind. The idea of all of these pieces. So the same thing is with a car. You can have your heart, your house full of car parts, but you don't have the car. You don't have transportation. The whole point of a car is to have the functionality of the car. And with the parts all over the place, you don't have that functionality. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Mm -hmm. So the same thing is true about the five khandas. It's not the each, uh, there's no self in each one of the various parts of it, but when we put things together into the form of a human being, it can be put together in such a way that the end product is dukkha. It can be arranged that way. But that's a product. It, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. What does that mean? That means that there's no self in all of those parts, but when we put the parts together in a certain arrangement, there a self arises. This is the teaching of Paticca Samapada, which is, we've been talking about this past 40 minutes or so. Okay, because the, the five khandas are the basis for the... Um, the the sequence of events of Paticca Samuppada, that these things actually exist. So how do the feelings arise? The answer to that is, is that perception and the sankara and the input, let us say that you have by new... Sorry, by feelings, do you mean emotions or... Let's get into that in just a moment. Okay, Let's get yeah. the process going first. And yeah. that is, is that we bring consciousness in either the consciousness of a thought or consciousness of sensory awareness. There's many different kinds of consciousness, but it only generally arises one at a time in any particular mind moment. We're either conscious of 
the uh, scratch on my finger or the bug on my leg or what I'm thinking about talking to you or whatever like that. We have we go back and forth very quickly in the mind. And so uh, when whatever comes in as sensory input, then we either leave it as just sensory input and enjoy the show or we try to make sense out of it in the sense of what do we do with this sensory input, right? That's perception. That's the nama rupa. We could, in fact, stop things at that point, and in fact, that was the instructions that uh, Sariputta followed to see, that when we stop perceiving, when we stop evaluating, when we stop trying to take the sensory input from the outside, the real reality, the rupa, and, and name it, or try to bring it inside to the mind. The only way that we can make sense out of it is by comparing it to some old database, which is the sankara. So the sankara and this uh, consciousness input feeds in then to perception, which is in the process and po- and out pops the object of perception. And there's a lot of different words for that. One could be an idea. The other word could be uh, uh, a, a thought. We could also call it consciousness in another way. But an example of that is I can say, I see the tree. And then I can say, I see what you mean. And if I say, I see what you mean, that means that I've taken other stuff that I've gotten from the past and plugged it into what you've just told me and understand what you're talking about. But even to say, I see a tree is doing the same thing. I've got to get trees out of the database in order to even name it a tree. Right. But I don't have to do that. I could just look at the tree without trying to figure out what it is. I could just watch it dance. And this is what we're talking about in the sense of can you bring that out? Because if you're just watching a dance, then we have interrupted the process at perception so that it does not now create an internal understanding. And that internal understanding is what affects us. That effective or that is called in the Pali Pasa and translated as uh, uh, contact. Yeah. But another way of talking about it is that's what affects us is our in, own internal representation, not what actually happened out there. We're not infected by the out, out, uh, out there, the sensory input. It's after the sensory input has been processed with our past to come up with whether we, uh, the way it contacts us, and that determines how we feel. Okay, how do we feel? The first step of it is we feel uh, just a slight niggle of I like it or I don't like it, or a feeling of I'm not sure if I like it or not like it. That can snowball. It could snowball in the next few mind moments if we allow it to snowball ignorantly. If we're watching what's going on, we have much more control over our feelings and we control, can do what we want to. Why is that? Going back to the five aggregates, the feelings themselves are not you. They're not fixed. They are um, arising based upon conditions. And we can reset those conditions so that you can feel the way that you want to rather than feel the way that you're normally conditioning yourself to feel in this moment. 
In other words, it depends upon what language the parent is using as to how the child is going to feel. So we literally talk ourselves into feeling good or we talk ourselves into feeling bad. And we're in a massive habit of talking ourselves into feeling bad, <laughs> not recognizing we've got a choice in there. So this is the five aggregates. This is almost like a good introduction into Petitra Samapada, because the five aggregates are the part that points out that there's no self in there any place. There's nothing permanent. There's nothing everlasting. There's nothing fixed. There's nothing supposed to's anywhere. The supposed to is just part of the rubbish. The laws are part of the uh, the problem, not the solution. Which is another way of looking at it uh, from the concept of uh, noble right view. Because the wrong view is basically I can get away with it. There's not many rules, but I still suffer because I keep wanting things and I'll go do anything to get that uh, and have to put up with the consequences, which I ignore because I think that I can get away with it. Okay, so the one who is uh, like like the biggest criminal in town is the one who keeps thinking he's going to get away with it and go get away with it and go get away with it. That's the whole point is, is that long as somebody thinks they're going to get away with it, there's no end to the amount of harm that they can do. So what we on the other side, the authoritarians say, no, let's put a right hurt on this guy. Let's put some limits on him. And so we hire... An army, we hire police, we hire school teachers, we hire nannies, and if none of that works, we hire Sunday school teachers and preachers and priests. That if we can't get him to stop because uh, he can get away from our police, then let's teach him about God because you can't get away from God. You can't get away from the comma machine, right? This is the teaching that the Buddha calls ordinary right view. But noble right view is just to look at what you're doing. Look at the suffering that's caused by thinking that we can get away with it, as well as look at the suffering that we cause by making silly rules based upon magical outcomes. Right. And live in a very happy way. Both of them require wisdom. Both of them require the, the, the bringing in of that higher mind or that higher self, if you want to use that word. Because there's no problem with using the word self, but a better word to understand what we're talking about is by using the word selfish, that one can be an individual and not be selfish, and someone could be a crowd inside and be very, very selfish, right? And so self, I like to use the word selfishness to talk about that's the path to uh, dukkha, or in fact, selfishness is the cause of suffering, or that we suffer because we're selfish, or you can think of it that the selfishness is the bucket that we carry the selfishness, which is the suffering around in. Without the bucket, there is nowhere for the suffering to be kept. So this is a way of looking at it, and that, that self arises due to the ignorant way that we put together the five khandas. Does that help you get an understanding yeah. about the self? Well, yeah, I, I hope it sinks in. <laughs> 
that the real issue is that it's not permanent. It's not a soul. Right. It's it's not an authority. It's not fixed. I guess I guess I got hung I got hung up on your point where uh, you were saying that you can be an individual but not be selfish. Uh, My parent figure sort of like jumped in and was like kind of internally berating myself a little bit for being too selfish and and then was uh came to the thought what you you need to you need to ask him like is it not that you you've just been so selfish by not interacting with like enough people i i don't know but that that was the that was the identification with the point that when when you when you asked me that question i i was stuck with that uh going on in my mind so <laughs> okay so that that's the danger of the dhamma is is that people will not pick it up as a beautiful jewel to take uh and hold as respect instead they put it in as a new rule right exactly thou shalt yeah. not be selfish yeah and i love rules that's that's my <laughs> my favorite motivate motivator to get stuff done is to you know just make new new rules new rules new rules and mm-hmm. It's it's hard to ch- to change habits because I mean that that was that was the mode of operating. It's like you say where you're like this is the operating procedure. I mean that's just the way that I get things done. Is just you if you make enough and rules up. Uh, well, that's because yeah. you really don't want to do all of that stuff anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Wake up to that. Yeah. Wake up that you've been doing a whole lot of stuff that you didn't want to do because you were so busy making up rules about what you should be doing. And all you've done is make yourself in a spiral of getting feeling worse, making up more and more rules that you're not going to follow. When you wake up to that, you stop uh, putting rules down and start nurturing. Hey, I caught that. Wow, that's really great. I can see that stuff. And start making friends with this internal dialogue rather than having that internal dialogue at war with itself. Hmm. Yes. So that's the whole point. And that translating anatta into no self has caused no end to the damage of the mind of Western Buddhist. Because they've gotten completely, completely confused. And whenever the various uh, definitions of the word self are, are used, that just adds to the confusion rather than the students figuring out, oh, there's more than one definition for the word self. Right. It's used in many. De- I mean, they, they, uh, they have um, <clears throat> fully self-driving. What does that mean? What does the Tesla actually do? Does the, does the robot that he's bringing on, does it really dance like the drug robot or man that was dressed as a robot dancing on the stage? No, no. That's the whole point is, is that we use the word self in a completely different way in many different occasions. <clears throat> and yet whenever we, we do, we keep coming back to the quality of uh, anatta being referred to as no self in Buddhism. Uh, even uh, Ajahn Tanesaro would rather it be referred to as non-self. But even bringing up the issue of selfishness, 
And selfishness is generally trying to preserve things the way they are because things are dangerous. So it's a self-preservation mechanism, the instinct that is the rise of the selfishness, which is protection. Okay, so we feel that we need protection. That's the bucket. What are we going to put in the bucket? Uh, everything that's disagreeable that keeps us you know, that's it. That's the dukkha. That's how it starts off. So if we can take control of these instincts, which are manifesting themselves in feeling, the feeling of fear, the feeling of whatever, and recognize that those feelings are not who I am, that I'm not anything other than the sum total of all of this stuff plowed together at this particular moment and I'll be something else the next moment, especially if I can wake up to look at what I was a moment ago and I'm not that now anymore. Okay. This is what's also referred to as the coming and going of the beings. It doesn't have to be life and death. You have to die and then reborn, which is the magical way of thinking it. But in fact, the mind itself comes and goes to one ego state to another back and forth, when you can see that, you can begin then to integrate them so that you become integrated. There really is in a self that can be manufactured. So, I'm repeating myself, and that's intentional. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a self that's there. <laughs> But repetition is good to go yeah. over the wholesome over and over and over yeah. and over again. So I think that we've covered it at least several times now. Yeah. And and it's sinking in. Yeah. On some level, it's sinking in. <laughs> Thank you. So, Thank you so much, Damarado. Okay. Keep with this. Keep yeah. investigating, keep noticing, keep recognizing that sometimes these duplex sentences have, oh, congratulations, you're, work, you're doing so well, now we're going to put you to work. Right. Because that's immediately in bringing up the dissatisfaction. And you can then the next five moment say, aha, I see that. Right. <laughs> and here we were congratulating. Let's do some more of that. Okay. I'll do more congratulating. <laughs> Okay, Joe. See you okay. later. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>